1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, and as usual, you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me in your own copy of Scripture. And before we do, again, let's thank the Lord for his word briefly, and let's um, ask for his blessing. Father, again, we thank you, and we bless you, and we praise you. We pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would please execute your office as the prophet of your church this evening speaking the will of God to us, that you would execute your office as king, subduing us unto yourself, and that you would execute the office of priest in atoning for us and in interceding for us and bringing us to yourself in glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. There Peter has moved out of that introductory section in which he set out all the privileges and blessings that we have in Christ. And now he says... As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not obtained mercy, but now you have received mercy. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, as we continue thinking about the importance of the Reformation on this Reformation Sunday, one of the things that we want to keep in mind is that one of the greatest principles of the Reformation was the principle of the priesthood of all believers. Maybe you've heard about the priesthood of all believers. If not, you're missing out on one of the greatest tenets of the Reformation. And one of the reasons that maybe we haven't heard about it as much is that beyond the writings of Martin Luther, who mentioned it in several of his writings, there's very little that's written on the priesthood of all believers, except there is a lot written on the priesthood of all believers and so much written on it in the passage that we're looking at in front of us. And as you know, Martin Luther was dealing with a church that had deviated greatly from the word of God, a church that had perverted almost every doctrine. The Reformation was a reformation back to the word of God. It was a reformation in salvation, the doctrines of grace. It was a reformation in ecclesiology. It was a reformation in how Jesus governs his church and who are ministers and who are not ministers. And Martin Luther in 1523, writing about the office of minister, made this all-important statement, all Christians are priests and all priests are Christians. Worthy of anathema is any assertion that a priest is anything other than a Christian. You 
are priests. There is no priesthood in the New Testament. There was a priesthood in the Old Testament. Any man that takes the title of priest to himself in any way exalting himself above other men is a usurper. It is an unbiblical thing. It is not okay for men to say that they have some special office of priesthood because what Peter tells us here in 1 Peter chapter 2 is that in Jesus Christ, all of God's people in the new covenant have been drawn in and have been given that great blessing and that anointing that they are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people that God has given his people every blessing so that they, as priests to God, might offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that as Peter wades into this subject, that he does something very interesting. You know, it's, it's an intriguing thought that um, what the writers of Scripture were doing in many ways were taking the things that they had heard from Christ and the things that they had been taught by Christ And then they were taking the things that were in the scriptures and they were processing all of these things in their mind, much like we process things in our minds. People have said things to us. We have had ministers who have ministered to us in special ways. We have events happen to us and they've impacted us. And then we think about them and we dwell on them. And one of the things that is striking, I think, when we look at this passage is that Peter, to whom Jesus had called him the stone, and had given him that new name, and to whom Jesus had told him at Caesarea Philippi, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That Peter, it seems, as we're looking at this letter, and now as we're in chapter 2, that what Peter does is he is, he is fascinated with the idea of Jesus as the stone and the believer as the stone. That he's fascinated with all that the Old Testament has to say about stones. Now, I think that's important. For several reasons. I don't think that Peter is simply thinking of himself and his office as the apostle and the importance that Jesus gave him as being one of the foundation stones and Jesus himself being that chief cornerstone. But I think that what Peter is doing by bringing us into the section now is he's trying to explain to a people who were going through great sufferings, a people who were going through great trials, he was explaining to them where their foundation rests as they travel through this world, where they are anchored and where they are set. And what Peter does as he goes back to the Old Testament, he finds this imagery of stones in the Old Testament and he finds theological significance to to God's appointing of these firm foundations and these established buildings, he finds in it the totality of the Christian life. And he wants you and I to understand that just as he was understanding that God had given him a rock-like foundation in Jesus Christ, and as he was appointed to proclaim that rock-like salvation in the Lord Jesus, that God has made us to have that same foundation and to be built on that same foundation and to ourselves in Christ, in union with Jesus, to become rock-like structures in which God dwells in this world with all of the uncertainties outside, with all of the changing nature of our lives, all of the uncertainties and the sufferings and the trials and the tribulations as we pilgrimage through this world, there is a place of firmness. There is a place where God has established his name and his work and his people. And I think we're going to see tonight that Peter does this in two ways. First, he tells us the identity and function of Christ as the living stone. And then secondly, he tells us the identity and function of believers as living stones 
in Christ. We'll notice that Peter is really giving us the story of Jesus as God's stone, God's rock, the cornerstone of all God's purposes in human history. And notice what he says in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones. I heard a minister I greatly admire talking on this passage, and he was talking about the fact that so many people talk about wanting to go to a living church. I want to go to a church where there's life, and it seems alive at this church. And Peter says that actually it's not that we come to a living church, but that we come to a living Christ. And in coming to a living Christ, we are ourselves made the living church. And that if you want to know, and if you want to know whether what you think about your experience as a Christian, and whether you want to know whether you are articulating the gospel properly, it's not that you tell people to come to a living church, it's that you tell them to go to a living Christ. And if you want to know whether your experience as a Christian is a sincere experience, and if you want to know whether you are part of a living church or whether you are merely an observer looking out at a living church, you, you answer the question the way Peter answers the question. Do you think about Jesus? what God the Father thinks about Jesus. Notice, notice what he says. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. The very first thing that Peter tells us about Christ, the living stone, is that he is chosen by God, that God in the councils of eternity chose his son to be the redeemer of men, to be the rock of his church, to be the one that David said that the Lord was his rock and his strength and his fortress and his deliverer, his high tower that the father chose the son. He chose the second person of the Godhead. Jonathan Edwards has a amazing sermon. Actually, it's a series of sermons entitled The Wisdom of God Displayed to the Angels in which he talks about how only the Son of God could be the Redeemer. The Father could not be the Redeemer because the Father was the offended party. The Spirit could not be the Redeemer because the Holy Spirit would have to apply the work of Jesus. And as Edwards unfolds it, he goes on to say that in order for the Father to receive the payment as the one acting as the offended party, and in order for the Spirit to be able to apply the payment and the purchase possession and seal the blessings of salvation to God's people, there had to be one of infinite value. There had to be one who was infinitely lovely. There had to be one who was infinitely worthy. There had to be one that was infinitely willing. There had to be one who was infinitely full of mercy and grace and kindness. There had to be one whose blood could interpose and be of infinite value, and that could only be the second person of the Godhead. And so you can understand more as Edwards unpacks that of why Jesus is called the chosen of the Lord. You know, there are, there are probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of professing Christians that get angry about the doctrine of election. But let me say this this evening. The doctrine of election does not begin with God choosing you in Christ before the foundations of the world. The doctrine of election begins with God the Father choosing God the Son Because God the Son was precious to the Father. God the Son was valuable enough to the Father to be the Redeemer. God the 
the, the son was the one in whom God the Father was delighting. All the, the, the moments, if I can even say that, in eternity in which he dwelt in unbroken fellowship with himself. And Peter tells us that we come to him as to a, a one who was chosen by God and precious. And then notice, notice what he says. To you who believe, verse 7, I like the New King James here. To you who believe, he is precious. He was precious to the Father. If you believe in him, he is precious to you. It's not that the church is precious to you. It's not that first and foremost other believers are precious to you. No, I, I have heard over and over and over and over and over again in my Christian walk people telling me that their Christian experience is built preeminently around the, the importance and the influence of some individual in their life other than Jesus Christ. But the Bible says, to you who believe, he is precious because he's precious to the Father. I have a book on my, in my office on my desk that I was looking at before I came here. And, and I think in all the books that I have, and I have a lot of books in, in, in the totality of my library, I think it is the sweetest title of any book in the, in the whole library. And the title is Christ Precious. Christ Precious. And the whole book is about the preciousness of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, why we should love Jesus, why we should be drawn to Jesus. You know, I, I am utterly convinced that the Song of Solomon is about Christ. And one of the reasons, and I often joke with my best friend Stephen about this, is that Solomon himself was not altogether lovely when he took a thousand women to himself. And David was not altogether lovely when he took Bathsheba to himself and murdered Uriah. But Jesus is altogether lovely. Jesus is altogether glorious. Jesus is altogether beautiful. There is not one blemish or imperfection in Jesus. Note what Peter says back in chapter 1, verse 19. You have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. He's precious to God. He's precious to us because we've been redeemed with his precious blood. And why is his blood precious? Because he is as a lamb without blemish and without spot this morning. I made the statement that Jesus never had one selfish thought. And I had someone come up to me after the service and said, I find that very hard to believe that in his flesh, he never had a selfish thought. And I went home wondering if someone doubted the absolute sinlessness of Jesus in his thought life, could that person actually say that Jesus Christ is precious? The preciousness of Jesus is built on his sinlessness. The preciousness of Jesus is built on his, his love for sinful, filthy sinners like us. People who have done wicked and abominable things. People whose thought lives, even if we haven't done it externally, our minds are polluted with judgmental thoughts and critical thoughts and harsh thoughts and angry thoughts and bitter thoughts and selfish thoughts. And yet Christ loved a people with all of that depravity, he loved us with an everlasting love. He loved us and he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end, not because of one single good thing in us. How can we not say Christ is precious? How can we not say that Christ is precious when we think of our unworthiness 
and his love and his willingness and that he gave everything and that as Thomas Watson has said, he bled love out of every vein. He bled love out of every vein. And notice what Peter says now as he begins to unpack the identity and function of Christ as the living stone that he says that he is chosen by God and precious. But notice as he reaches back to the Old Testament in verse 6, he says it stands in scripture and God prophesied there in Psalm 118.22, I'm laying in Zion a chief cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And, and then again, I'm sorry, that was Isaiah 28.16. And then again in Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And what Peter does, and it's fascinating, he sees in Christ the apex of human history. He sees in Jesus the litmus test of all men who ever live or who will ever live or who have ever lived. And he essentially says that Jesus Christ is God's precious stone, whether men believe or not, whether they trust in him and rest in him or whether they reject him. You know, there's a place in the Gospels, and I've often wondered why we don't hear about this little saying of our Lord Jesus more where he said to his disciples, whoever falls on this stone, speaking of himself, will be broken but on whomever it falls, he will be crushed to pieces. And Jesus was, of course, consciously acknowledging that he was the stone spoken of in Isaiah 28, that he was the stone spoken of in Psalm 118, that he was the one that the builders would reject. And Peter, on that great day where he is preaching in Acts chapter 4 to the chief priest and the scribes who had crucified Jesus, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Listen to this. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. You know, Jesus himself had cited that psalm after he told the parable of the vineyard being leased out and the workers in the vineyard killing the prophets and then the owner of the vineyard saying, I will... I will send my son to them. Surely they will respect my son. And Jesus said they did the same thing to the son and they killed him. And then Jesus said, but the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's one of the most marvelous predictions of the resurrection of Jesus in the whole scriptures. The stone the builders have rejected, death, has become the chief cornerstone, resurrection. You know, it was... Simeon, when he held the baby Jesus there in the temple, and after he had prophesied about Jesus being a light to the Gentiles and for the glory of God's people Israel, he made this, this passing statement about Jesus. He said, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against Jesus Christ will either be a chief cornerstone to men or he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And notice that as Peter develops that, that the stone the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Then he quotes uh, Isaiah 8.14 and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. No matter how much 
The Israelites of Jesus' day searched the scriptures. They could not see the preciousness of Jesus. They could not see that he was God's stone. They were oblivious to it. It was like the Israelites in the wilderness. You know, I often think, and I've often thought, how wonderful would it have been to see, to see water gushing out of a rock supernaturally? And how could they not believe And yet Paul tells us that rock was Christ. It was pointing to the life-giving water of the Lord Jesus, the Redeemer who would come. And they didn't believe, and they grumbled, and they complained. He is a stone of stumbling. He is a rock of offense. But to us who believe, he is chosen by God and precious. You know, we're small enough for me to tell you this, and... It's one of the sweet privileges to be able to show your inmost desires to people. I think the greatest, the greatest disappointment in my life and in my soul is that Christ is not more precious to me. I think a burden that I carry with me on a daily basis is that I want Christ to be more precious to me. And as I look out at the myriads of Christians in this world and going every which way and doing all the things and having their conversations and living their lives. And it's, it's not evident, is it, that Christ is precious. And I thought this morning about Jim Elliott, who gave his life in sacrificial service, um, who poured himself out, who said he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain, what he cannot lose. And, and the reason Jim Elliott could do that is because Christ was precious to him. It wasn't out of a legal zeal, to, I have to tell others about Jesus and scourging himself to do more. It was because Christ was precious to him. I think of the Apostle John on Patmos, who at the end of his life, laid down his life as a martyr for Jesus. And it wasn't, it wasn't John trying to do anything or trying to tell people what to do or to set himself up as some example. It was because Christ was the precious Lamb of God to John. His heart had been captivated. And, and John gives us an inlet in one of those letters to the seven churches, to the church in Ephesus, where Jesus tells them, you've left your first love, that the most painful thing to us as Christians ought to be having hearts that have grown cold in love toward Christ. And yet, notice that Peter is encouraging and stirring us up to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus so that we would know him more, so that we would desire him more. And notice what he says. He says they stumble because they disobey the word because they were appointed to do that. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, Peter does two things in this passage. Secondly, he moves from the identity and function of Christ as the living stone to the identity and function as believers who are living stones in union with Jesus. And notice he does it right off the bat in verse 4. He says in verse 5, you also, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Um, One of the principles of the Reformation that often gets neglected is the doctrine of union with Christ. You can hardly read the Reformers and then the Puritans after them without seeing the centrality of the doctrine of union with Christ, that everything that's true about Jesus becomes true about you if you are united to him by faith. Calvin had this marvelous statement where he said that 
Jesus Christ was set for this, that everything that's true of him would become true of us. And everything that he has becomes ours. That was the point. That's why the Father chose the Son to be the precious redeemer of men and to be that foundation stone, that capstone, so that in him we might receive of his fullness grace upon grace and that we might be built up in him and we might be made the the dwelling place of God in the spirit. Now, Peter does several things. He tells us here that we are living stones in Christ, which obviously is an allusion to the temple. And then in verse nine, he tells us that we are a chosen nation. And then he tells us we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He te- what Peter essentially does is he goes back into Israel's history And everything that was significant about what God was telling Israel, he says, is spiritually realized in you. And there was probably nothing, there definitely was nothing, in all of Israel's cultic practices, their worship practices, that was more significant than the temple. In fact, the temple stood, as it were, at the center of the world. When the disciples asked Jesus, when the stones would be cast down and when these things would be and when the time of the end would come, they were assuming that Jesus telling them the temple was going to be destroyed in A.D. 70. In their minds, the world would be coming to an end. The temple would pass away. No more temple, no more world. It was the center of the cosmos. And within that temple, when you went in past the outer court and into the inner court, and then you went into the holy place, and then you saw the priest going in there and taking the sacrifice with him, and then he would go into the most holy place, and the high priest once a year taking blood for himself and for the people would go in. What he was doing was he was going into the center of the cosmos. He was going into the presence of God. He was going into the place of access. And what Peter's telling us is that in Christ, you and I have access to God, to the very holy place, directly into the center of the universe. Tim Keller put this so magnificently, speaking about us being made priest and living stones, a dwelling place for God and priests going into that temple. He said, the central wonder of the gospel is that we have access as priest to the downtown of the cosmos. I love that. That's just a great Tim Keller saying. We have access as priest to the downtown of the cosmos. We have access to the center, the place where everybody wants to be. We have access into the very presence of God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ is the forerunner and that he went before us and that he went through the veil into the presence of God and that as it were, he carries you with him and that the experience of the Christian life ought to be one of consciousness that he has made us priest, that he has given every one of us access to what only those special priests had in the Old Testament. It's marvelous. I'm not sure who said this, but it's been said by lots of theologians that one of the greatest problems in the Christian life is that Christians live well below the privileges that are theirs. I think, personally for myself, and I suppose for you as well, we all live well below the privilege we have as being priest to God. We are priests. There's no special ordination. There's no special class of Christians. I want to read this to you again. Luther said, All Christians are priests, and all priests are Christians. 
Worthy of anathema is any assertion that a priest is anything other than a Christian. Now, Peter does three things very quickly as we walk out of this passage. First, he tells us that priests offer sacrifices. Notice there in verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, Jesus is the high priest. He offers the sacrifice of himself. We are then made priest in him, in union with him, and we offer the sacrifices of praise. Notice what Peter says in, in uh, verse 9, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Every time we give thanks to God from the heart, every time we call on him, Every time we praise him for his redeeming grace, and Peter uses a special word that carries with it the idea of proclaiming his redeeming graces. Every time we offer up the sacrifices of thanksgiving to God, we are acting as priest. We are acting as priest in the temple, offering the incense to God. And God loves when his people thank him. God loves when his people praise him. God, the psalmist said, is enthroned on the praises of his people. When we from the heart praise God and thank him, our prayers, as it were, ascend up and form a throne on which the living God sits. He loves the praise of his people. We love the praise of people. Why would God not love the praises of his people? We want everybody to praise us. And don't you dare say you don't. We all want to be known and loved and praised. God, God over all the earth, loves the praises of his people. He has redeemed us to praise him. He has redeemed us so that we would offer, as Paul says elsewhere, sacrifices of thanksgiving, sacrifices of joy, sacrifices of rejoicing to our God. Secondly, Peter tells us that by these privileges we've received, we've been made the true Israel, the royal priesthood, a chosen people, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to be heralds who proclaim his redeeming grace. That's one of the functions. You know, we often forget that priests didn't just sacrifice and they didn't just offer sacrificing. They also instructed the people. There was an element of instruction. And what they did in acting out the sacrificial system was they were, in a sense, acting out the gospel for the people to see the redeeming mercy and grace of Christ. It was word pictures. It was a divine drama. The priest, one job was to act out the gospel and to show forth the gospel to the people of God. And the one thing that God wants from us as priests is that we would not only offer personal sacrifices of thanksgiving, but that we would proclaim the redeeming excellencies of God, that we would proclaim his redeeming grace, that we would tell others what Christ has done for us. No, I marvel, again, at the weakness of my own heart. If Christ has had such mercy on us, how could we not be overflowing with gratitude and longing to tell people the redeeming excellencies of our God. If he has lavished us with such great privileges, how could we not be eager to tell others what our God has done for us? You know, when someone does something kind for Anna and me, we will often sit in the house and just talk about how overwhelmed we are 
with the kindness that people in this congregation have shown us. Now, if we do that on a personal level with each other, how much more should we be doing that for the eternal redemption that we have in Jesus? Our God has given us everything in Christ, and he has appointed us to be heralds of his divine excellency. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, Peter points out that the identity of believers as living stones is that we have become recipients of mercy. We don't deserve this. Notice what he says, writing to a congregation that probably had numbers of Gentiles and certainly numbers of Jews who had been converted out of their Judaism to the truth of the gospel. Notice what Peter says. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once, verse 10, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, Peter is reaching back to Hosea. And in Hosea, Israel had essentially broken covenant with God. They had played the harlot with other nations. God used the strongest imagery possible to teach them about their spiritual unfaithfulness. They had become like the worst kind of adulterous woman on the planet. And yet God said to them, though you have shown yourself not to be my people, and though you will not be called my people, and you know the story, Gomer and Hosea had two children, Loami and Lohurama, not my people and no mercy. And though they didn't deserve God's mercy, and though we don't deserve God's mercy, certainly as those who are far from God by nature, yet God said, nevertheless, I will call a people who were not my people, my people, and where they were called no mercy, I will say, I will have mercy. And the totality of the Christian life is summed up in this one idea that a people who should not have been the people of God have now become the people of God in Christ. And a people who once did not know mercy have received mercy. And what that does, and I want us to leave with this thought tonight, what that does is it takes it full circle back to Jesus Christ. And it disarms us of any spiritual pride and looking down at others who aren't reading what we're reading and, and, and doing what we're doing and, and living up to the measure that we, the bar we've set for them. And, and what it does is it flattens the playing field and it puts you and me on the same plane as every other single person by nature in this world. And as Jonathan Edwards said, and I searched for this and I couldn't find it, but I know Jonathan Edwards said it and I think it's in the excellencies of Christ. The only difference between me And the worst sinner in the deepest part of hell is the grace of God. And Peter says the only thing that's different between you and anybody else is the mercy of God in Christ. That's it. It's not that you prayed a prayer. It's not even that you trusted in Jesus. It's not that you know reformed doctrine. It's not that you choose to go to a church, praise God you do, that preaches the word. It's not because you surround yourself with people that like to read good doctrine and love the truth. It's not any of those things. In fact, all of those things, as important as they are, oftentimes become fuel for spiritual pride. And yet the insignia that ought to hang over our homes and over our lives, what ought to be placarded over every one of our lives, is this. Once we were not a people... But now we are God's people. 
Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. That sums up the totality. And what that does is that forces us to look away from ourselves, whatever accomplishments we think we have, and to say Christ is precious. Christ is precious. Christ is precious. Jesus is precious. He is the stone. He has done it. He deserves the sacrifice of praise. His redeeming excellencies are to be made known. Anything that we have, we have by his sovereign mercy. Now my prayer, and it has been my prayer for us, is that these truths would change us completely. And that maybe at one time when we read these things, they were fresh and they hit us with um, a wonder and an awe. I know they have for me. And that God would do that again. And that like waves of his mercy just coming over us, these truths would continue to just flow over us. And that we would realize that God has made Jesus Christ that eternally precious cornerstone. You know, whatever we may love, whatever we may hate in life, whatever we may think about our experiences here and now, the difficulties, the trials, the letdowns, the happinesses, the joys, all any, anything, anything we may be going through, in consummated glory, all of that will be forgotten. John tells us in Revelation, there will be no more sorrow, or tears, or crying, or sighing. There will be no more evil. There will be no more sin. But as we sang tonight, the Lamb will be all the precious glory in Emmanuel's land. And what you're hearing tonight will be our experience for all eternity at the center of the throne and at the center of the Lamb, the, the throne, at the center of the worship room of heaven will be the Lamb without blemish. And without spot, who redeemed us to God with his precious blood. May God press these truths into our minds and hearts. May the Spirit give us grace to believe and to find the Lord Jesus precious. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this amazing reminder of all that you've done for us. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you are the precious cornerstone chosen by God and appointed to be the foundation of your church. We thank you that there is no other foundation that can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, but we long to have hearts that are caught up with your glory and your beauty. We long to have our hearts enthralled with um, your altogether loveliness and preciousness. We pray, our God, that you would help us who have maybe had the years of difficulties and trials weigh us down and take away some of that joy that ought to be ours in believing him, though we do not see him, yet we love him. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you and your Father would command grace and mercy for us tonight. We pray that you would stir up our minds and enlarge our hearts in the knowledge of you. We pray, our God, that you would make us to understand the benefits that we have and that we would not live below them, but that we would always be pressing to live in accord with them. Our God, we pray that you would make us 
a priesthood of believers who long to sing your praises and proclaim your redemptive excellencies. Father, do this for us in this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.